Each week in our Underreported series, we try to bring important, lesser-known stories to your attention. And what we have learned is that a lot of important stories can slip under the radar. Foreign Policy Magazine has collected 10 of this past year's, and joining me now is Associate Editor Joshua Keating. His article, The Stories You Missed in 2011, is in the December issue of the magazine. I'm very pleased to welcome him to today's underreported segment. Hello. Thanks, Leonard. You begin your list with a look at India's military buildup in recent years. Didn't India become the world's largest weapons importer this past year? It did indeed, and uh, it actually accounts for about 9% of the world's international arms transfers. Those are mostly from Russia uh, over the last five years. And it's interesting that with all the attention that was paid this year to China's new aircraft carrier, which is really just a refitted Soviet-era model that they bought from Russia, that um, it's really been uh, India that's been uh, investing heavily, particularly in sea power. People, uh, at least in this country, don't normally think of uh, India as a sea power, but the uh, you know, obviously they're they're looking east and uh, to the Indian Ocean to the sort of future of their military role there. What what kind of military role would they have using their navy? Uh, well, they're spending about $45 billion over the next 20 years on 103 new warships. No aircraft carriers, but uh, destroyers and nuclear submarines. And, um, you, you know, I, I mean, what they this is really, uh, I mean, probably about China. And, uh, well, as, you know, the U.S. plays sort of less of a military role in that region, they, they sort of see the need to uh, bulk up. And the, the Pentagon, actually, in their in their quaternial defense review, welcomed the more influential role for India in that region. So, um you know, hopefully this will remain peaceful, although there was a, a confrontation uh, in August between a Chinese warship and an Indian amphibious assault ship near Vietnam. So um, hopefully that's not a sign of things to come. And how has China reacted to India's buildup? Uh, well, uh, you know, China, China's own uh, naval buildup has, of course, been a major story for for some time, and uh, it's not just on the sea uh, that there's a, um, you know, that the the Indian uh, Chinese border has been under dispute for decades, and so um, it, you know that this, these two superpowers have so far been able to coexist uh, relatively peacefully. I was just wondering if there's away. any kind of a war of words going on here, or is it? Well, since I don't want you to complain about what I'm mm-hmm. doing, I'm going to keep quiet about what you're doing. Well, there was in August after um, this uh, Chinese warship, this uh, Indian uh, assault vessel was uh, confronted by a Chinese vessel. There was kind of a uh, a back and forth with uh, ambassadors being summoned and that sort of thing. But uh, uh, so far, nothing really beyond that. In the past, Pakistan was seen as uh, India's most likely opponent. Is that no longer the case? Uh, and, and are these weapons being used uh, in the military campaigns within India against the Maoist rebels? Sure. I mean, India faces a number of security threats, both uh, from the Maoist insurgency you talked about, from uh, uh, internal uh, Islamist militant groups, um, and, uh, you know, the disputed border with Pakistan and Kashmir. And I, I think that's still the case, and that's probably still their major priority. But um, China is something they're now increasingly keeping an eye on as well. You also discussed the conflict in the Pakistani region of Baluchistan. Haven't separatists been operating in the region for years? Has it become more uh, more violent in the past year? 
They have a, Baluchistan is, is a, is Pakistan's largest province. It, it accounts for about half of its land area and, uh, separatist groups there. Uh, they've been waging an insurgency sort of off and on since 2007. Uh, and this is the, the fifth Baluchi uprising actually since Pakistani independence. Um, but, uh, you know, for all the attention that we focus on the Afghan border and the, um, uh, turmoil there, actually Baluchistan saw the highest number of militant attacks of any Pakistani province. 2010, and that trend's uh, continuing in 2011. There have been multiple bombings of key uh, gas pass pipelines, murder of uh, Punjab settlers who have moved into that region. And uh, the Pakistanis' response has been very controversial, too. The Human Rights Watch has documented the killings of about uh, 150 people during January and June, by likely carried out by Pakistani security forces. Uh, it was described as uh, an abusive free-for-all in the Human Rights Watch's report. Um, so, you know, this is, this is another, uh, obviously Pakistan is, is very much in the news all the time, but um, this is another kind of aspect of the conflict that we don't think about quite as much. Well, we don't think much about all these separatist movements, these independence movements, uh, mostly through Asia, the Kurds, the Baluchis. There's a number of different groups in India, uh, in Myanmar. Uh, what would happen if all of them succeeded? Uh, it, uh, Asia would have about 30 or 40 more new countries, wouldn't it? Uh, yes, well, I mean, um, you know, that it doesn't seem so likely that all these would uh, succeed. But, um, you know, certainly in Southeast Asia in particular, there are uh, long-running uh, separatist insurgencies that, that don't get a lot of attention. And, um, you know, Southeast Asia in particular is another region we're watching. And another of these stories on the list is about um, this year's uh, border conflict between Thailand and Cambodia, which actually for a few days actually uh, turned into a bit of a shooting war. My guest is Associate Editor Joshua Keating, whose article, The Stories You Missed in 2011, is in the December issue of Foreign uh, Policy magazine. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. I'm Leonard Lopez. Why do you think uh, all of these different shooting wars really get so little attention? People die as a result, don't they? Well, this was an, a, a sort of interesting year to do this list because I think well, we've done it for four or five years now, but I think this year in particular, uh, news attention was really dominated by two or three events, uh, by the Arab Spring, of course, uh, by the economic crisis, by the earthquake in Japan, and the beginnings of the uh, U.S. presidential election. So um, I think more so than most years, this was a, uh, a time when a lot of uh, very crucial, very important stories kind of fell uh, fell below the radar and, and didn't get uh, really the attention they deserve. But um, as we've seen with, with a number of our stories in the past, these are the kind of things that um, could become um, bigger bigger issues uh, next year. So uh, part of the idea of the project is not just to look at what's been overlooked, but uh, to try to kind of anticipate a little bit, um, you know, what's going to be a major factor in the year to come. But also, in some cases, the big stories that we've been looking at can have an impact elsewhere, for example, the debt crisis in the Eurozone. How have the Eastern European countries that were set to join the Eurozone reacted to the economic and political problems in the, the common currency? 
Right. Well, we've we've seen uh, you know ten new countries have joined the European Union, uh, uh, Eastern European countries, and on uh, the beginning of this year, Estonia became the 17th country that adopted the euro, and uh, Poland was due to join the eurozone next year, but has has indefinitely postponed that, um, and you, you know no longer see it as as kind of a major priority, and uh, uh, several other countries, Bulgaria, Romania, Latvia, Lithuania, um, we've also seen statements coming out of their, uh, th- those countries' governments um, either pushing back the date when they're going to adopt the euro or saying it's not as great a priority as it was. Um, and, you know, this is a, a really big change because, you know, only two years ago, Eurozone membership was being touted as a major solution to uh, Eastern Europe's debt problems. And, uh, you know, a, a leaked IMF report even suggested that that process be accelerated. But uh, what's happening is that these countries are now seeing the kind of straitjacket that's been put on a lot of these troubled European economies like uh, Greece and Italy and Spain, who are unable to control their own uh, economic policy, uh, uh, their own monetary policy, rather, to, to print more money and try to boost exports. And, and you know, that they're wondering now whether uh, the crisis would have been worse for them had they entered the Eurozone. And, um, you know, several of these countries, Poland in particular, are actually outperforming uh, Europe economically. So, um, you know, uh, while all of them still, you know, on the record say that they're still planning on uh, Eurozone membership. It's it's definitely an open question right now when exactly that's going to happen, if it ever will. We've been hearing about Somali pirates uh, working off the eastern coast of Africa for years, but aren't pirates now operating off the west coast of, of Africa and also off the coast of South America? Right. Well, the, the, the kind of hot new zone for pirates this year was, was West Africa and the Gulf of Guinea, uh, which is a very uh, oil-rich region, saw a spike in attacks. There were 19 off the coast of Benin uh, in 2011. There were none in 2010. Uh, we for, also saw, for, by, by Somali pirates or people from Benin? No, 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 no. These are, these are local pirates. And, and there were six attacks off the Nigerian coast and three off the coast of Ghana. And there are probably a lot more that were unreported. And the, the presidents of Nigeria and Benin actually held a a head of state summit devoted to piracy. Now, what's interesting is these West African pirates uh, operate a bit differently than the Somali ones we've been hearing about, uh, whereas Somali pirates tend to uh, kidnap these ships' crews for ransom money. Uh, the the West African pirates are actually stealing from the, uh, the ships themselves. They're actually going for the cargo. Um, and you know this is, and also, whereas uh, Somalia's piracy is often seen as you know a function of uh, the instability on land there, you can't really say that of a country like Ghana, which is one of Africa's most stable and peaceful democracies. And so, um, you know, what, what's really drawing them is probably the region's oil boom and all the, all the sort of wealth that's coming out of the Gulf of Guinea now is attracting piracy. Immigration was a, a major focus of last week's Republican presidential debate on national security, and it, it is likely to remain an issue throughout the primaries. But you write about the Obama administration's aggressive approach to illegal immigration. Have they been cracking down more than the Bush administration did? Yeah, for all this tough talk we've been hearing from the Republican field about, you know, who's going to build a bigger fence and uh, deport uh, more illegal immigrants, uh, you know, what they don't really talk about is that, uh, you know, nearly 400,000 uh, illegal immigrants were deported in the last fiscal year by the Obama administration. As of October, uh, almost 1.2 million people had been deported over Obama, and that's a pretty staggering number when you consider that only 1.5 million were deported over the entire eight years of the Bush presidency. 
emergency. And do you see this as uh, something that has a political side to it, or are there other reasons? Well, you know, I, I think uh, well the way that it's discussed by uh, Janet Napolitano of the uh, Home, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security and others is that uh, they're going to sort of bulk up uh, security and deportations and get tougher on illegal immigration, and that will sort of give them the political space to uh, enact immigration reform to both uh, allow more legal immigrants in and uh, try to find a pathway to citizenship for some of those who are already here. Um, you know, of course, the... Uh, uh, dynamics in Congress being what they are now, there's been very little progress on immigration reform. So what we've seen is, is you know, a lot of the a lot of the stick on immigration, and not so much of the carrot that was promised. More than 40 years ago, an English explorer, this Sunjin Philby, wrote that the camel would probably disappear from Saudi Arabia in less than 30 years. Obviously, that prediction was a bit off. But haven't there been concerns about the supply of camel meat for a long time? Yeah, the the stock of meat-producing camels in Saudi Arabia has uh, decreased from about 426,000 in 1997 to just 260,000 today. That's a drop of 39 percent. And uh, you know, part of this is is the sort of shift in lifestyle in Saudi Arabia, much more urban population. Uh, but the demand is, is hasn't the demand for both uh, camels for racing and for camel meat hasn't gone up. And the uh, uh, overall, the Asian camel population has decreased about 20. 20 20% between 94 and 2004, and um, you know that that's affected countries like Pakistan as well. The interesting winner from this has been Australia, which uh, which actually boasts the world's largest remaining population of wild camels. Uh, these are descendants of animals that were brought by Brit- British settlers uh, from India in the 19th century. And uh, but the thing is, you know, they they view camels a little differently there. They're kind of this feral nuisance animal that um, uh, you know aren't really consumed for food or used for anything much in Australia. And so uh, Australian farmers are actually profiting quite a bit by shipping their excess camel stocks to uh, Saudi Arabia to be slaughtered for food. Does the reduction of camel meat supplies by almost 40% in the past 14 years mean that the people who rely on them are in a more precarious position? For Um, example, in Somalia, as the famine was setting in, camels were reported to be dying off. Right. Well, you know, the camels are kind of considered an early warning sign for famine because they're uh, so hardy and resilient. Once the camels start to die, that's that's sadly usually a sign that uh, people aren't going to be uh, much far behind, and that has been the case of Somalia, which has seen uh, reportedly a mass die-off of camels, uh, and that's uh, in advance of the uh, famine that we saw there uh, earlier this year. Now, you uh, coming up with a list of the ten uh, most ignored stories is kind of arbitrary, isn't it? Uh, well, yes. I mean, there, obviously, there's sort of dozens of other stories that get overlooked every year, and we're. But uh, you know, I think we pick ten that uh, both we find interesting and we think uh, do have larger significance. They're not just sort of local national stories. They're things that are going to be uh, indicative of major trends and are going to um, have effect. Uh, have worldwide effects and maybe um, you know maybe be go from page A five stories in the New York Times to A one stories in the in the coming year. Is that what's happened in the past? 
If you look back to last year or the year before, did those A5 stories become A1 stories? Sure. There were things we covered, like the uh, Northern Distribution Network in Afghanistan. That's the shipping of goods from Central Asia uh, through to Afghanistan, which has become uh, increasingly important as the um, uh, um, supply lines from Pakistan have been threatened, and we've seen the Obama administration take steps to normalize uh, relations with Uzbekistan, for instance, to uh, preserve those routes. Uh, our top story uh, last year was on, uh, you know, the growth of in- the Indonesian economy, which is kind of the sort of forgotten brick, the um, the country that, in addition to China and Brazil, has also seen massive economic growth, and I think that's gotten a lot more attention this year, particularly with uh, President Obama's visit um, in the early part of this year. So I think, you know, obviously there's plenty that uh, uh, haven't gotten noticed, but I, I think our, our track record's decent. We have a link to Joshua Keating's article in Foreign Policy Magazine on our show page at WNYC.org. It's called The Stories You Missed in 2011. And thank you so much for being with us again. Thanks, Leonard. 